Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Academic historians spend years in archives to uncover new evidence that lets them tell us something previously unknown about the past, but unfortunately only people like you and me tend to read their books. Popular historians retell known stories about the past, and if they're good at it, they make those stories accessible for new audiences. If they're very good at it, they provide fresh perspectives that make those familiar stories meaningful in new ways, even to those who have heard them before. John Avlon, author of Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, is very good at it. We'll talk with him tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you as usual from the third floor of the now almost deserted Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. Not, however, speaking for East Carolina University, Uh, or anyone on campus. In fact, everyone on campus is at the baseball stadium where the team is playing uh, our friends up at Chapel Hill, UNC, right now. Uh, Last time I looked, we were down 2-1 to in the sixth inning. Well, I've I've bravely turned off the picture in the corner of my screen. I'm not following the games we talked tonight. I'm far too professional for that. so I'm not speaking for ECU, and my guest tonight will not speak for any organization he <laughs> might belong to. We always do it that way here on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, it is the uh, third, well, no, first show of May 2023, it's, uh, and it's the end of the semester here. Final exams are underway. Uh, just finished the last in-class final for the military history course I've been teaching and uh, it, it has been a, a great course. The, the good news about it is the students have been motivated. They've shown up every week. 
Uh, a lot of ROTC students for whom military history has a special resonance, and uh, they, they've done the work, they've contributed in class, I've really enjoyed teaching it, and will be uh, sorry to see them go and wish them all the best. Have not finished their grading exam, grading all their exams yet, so I don't know how uh, how happy they will be with me eventually, but uh, so far they look pretty good. Uh, the downside is that because so many of them are ROTC students who are graduating uh, this week and commissioning, they have to have their grades in before they can be officially uh, commissioned. And that means we can't wait till the Monday grade deadline. I have to turn them in tomorrow afternoon. Uh, that's 40 essay exams to be graded between late this afternoon and tomorrow, uh, roughly midday. So I'm, I'm too old to pull an all-nighter, but if I ever did, it would be for something like this. Uh, we'll manage, though. In other local news here at DCU, uh, an alum just gave $5 million to the school to build an indoor practice facility for uh, football and other teams. If any listeners are interested in contributing $5 million to East Carolina for a new history department building, I'm pretty sure we could get your name on it, just as the new guy donor is getting his name on the practice building. And as ridiculous as that sounds, the Brewster building that I'm sitting in actually is named for Lawrence F. Brewster, who was a history professor who the the legend is he just saved all his money and when he died left a bequest uh, big enough to build a building with so uh, and his name is on it so you could do the same consider that um, while you're thinking about that keep listening to civil war talk radio on our upcoming shows next week we'll have uh ty sedgley joining us to talk about the lost cause and its minor ramifications it is well-known book, I'm sure many of you have already read, is called Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. No show on May 17th. I'll be off on This Hallowed Ground, the annual tour with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. And coming back on the 24th, Julie Holcomb will be our guest. Uh, she has written about exploring the American Civil War through 50 historic treasures. Uh, working on the show for the 31st, but we'll finish up in June. Allison Johnson has written a book about the Left Armed Corps, the Union amputee veterans who learned to write with their left hands, if they were right-handed before the war, and uh, the stories that they left behind. On June 14th, our annual Almost Live from Gettysburg program, it'll be time for the Civil War Institute, which you can still go to. Uh, Go to the Gettysburg College website, look for CWI, contact them, and tell them you listen to this show. They'll give you a discount uh, just because they like us and we like them. You can find out about these things and everything else that's happening here, of course, from the website, www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney keeps everything up to date there. He is the one who pointed out a month or two ago that we were coming up on show number 600. Uh, we're in our 19th year here at Civil War Talk Radio, 600 shows uh, now on file. And you can help keep that going by going to the website and click on the PayPal donation button. You don't have to have a PayPal account. You don't have to join PayPal. You can do it uh, just by thinking about it, apparently. You can cause money to be transferred from your bank account into my PayPal account. And uh, it is not... Uh, 
not a charity, not a 501c3. It's not a donation. In the interest of transparency, uh, where does the money go? Theoretically, books, and actually recently it did. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to the Savas Beatty website. Many of you have read uh, the books they publish, and they were they have a sale, which you can take advantage of, uh, of their journal, Civil War Regiments Journal, now defunct. They have back issues of it on sale, and I bought a bunch of those with money that you would kindly send me. So uh, send more. Uh, that's what you get for your money is a clear conscience for listening to the show and and contributing to it, and I get to buy more Civil War books. Well, tonight uh, we are talking about a Civil War book. Uh, it is called Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. Our guest and author of the book is John Avalon. When not writing about Abraham Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, he is a senior political analyst at CNN and the author of several books on both contemporary and historical political situations. Uh, Mr. Avalon, are you there? I am indeed. How are you? Good. Welcome to the show. Honored to be with you. Well, normally I will ask people about where they teach or what their day job is, but uh, I've already given that, I've let that cat out of the bag. Uh, (laughs) So let me ask you instead uh, about your interest in history and how that dovetails with what you do for a living. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I am passionate about history and applied history, uh, which as I define it as sort of useful history. It's the lessons we can learn and apply to our own lives. And uh, as a journalist, and before that as a speechwriter, um, I find using history is invaluable in imposing perspective on our, our current events and current debates. And it, it's a move people don't uh, use that often. Um, I think especially generationally, but I, I find it invaluable because that sense of historic perspective, at least for me, it, it, it locates us. It reinforces the sense that we are, you know, <laughs> holding one chain in, in, in the, the, the line of destiny. And there's a lot that occurred before. And uh, that intersection of the past, the present and the future is endlessly fascinating and inspiring to me. And I think in part it's because I'm the grandson of, of immigrants mm-hmm. and like many immigrant families. Um, you know, it, it, it makes them not take America for granted, um, to, to really appreciate the blessings of, of this country. My grandfather served in World War II, but came through Ellis Island as a child. Um, and his reverence for Lincoln in particular really rubbed up on me. Uh, in particular, I think his example as both a good and a great man. And it's his goodness that I think inspires me the most and is the key to understanding his greatness. I, I like the term applied history you used there. In uh, uh, the, the term of art used in the field nowadays is public history for, uh, for teaching and, and interpreting history outside of academia. But when the field started you know, 40 years ago, there's a big debate whether they should call it public history or applied history. Interesting. Uh, and you know, people who work in museums and so on work with the public. Today are called public historians. Uh, I, I teach public history classes here for students, but applied history might have been a better term uh, for all the reasons you just suggested. Why? How, how much relevance yeah. it has? I, I would argue it's decidedly the better term for a bunch of different reasons. Um, first of all, uh, it, once you say public history, it implies that there's a private history. And I'm not sure that's a corollary to what people mean by public history. Uh, <laughs> You're right. Exactly right. 
So, so there's that. Um, but but it, it, to my mind, applied history is a slightly different spin on the ball. <clears throat> um, it is implied, if it's done elegantly, um, uh, emphasizes the parallels of, of past struggles to our current challenges. And it, it promises the distillation of, of useful wisdom. And indeed, I think that's the way history was often understood. Putting aside, I think, the way people... Um, uh, you know, can misunderstand, well, misteach history by making a succession of dates and names, putting that aside, understanding, you know, you're, you're a professional historian and, and it's about the stories. Um, but, but some folks um, will, will approach history uh, in a way that's uh, decidedly designed to offer courage or comfort on our current times. And for people to say, okay, well, what can we learn uh, uh, that I can apply to my own life? What, what inspires me in particular about Lincoln, I use it the mm -hmm. epigraph of the book, and uh, you know, it is not from one of his most famous speeches, and it's not uh, a widely known quote, I'm sure to you and your audience it is, um, but the reason I chose it as the epigraph was it showed a high degree of, uh, I think, characteristic brilliance on Lincoln's part, but self-conscious awareness about his place in history. Um, and it sums up, uh, I think, the essence of applied history for me. Um, Lincoln says on the night he wins re-election in 1864, mm -hmm. um, he says, human nature will not change in any future great national trial. Compared with men of this, we shall have as weak and as strong, as silly and as wise, as bad and as good. Let us, therefore, study the incidents of this as a philosophy to learn wisdom from, and none of them as wrongs to be revenged. That takes my breath away because it's not only the thesis of the book in a profound way, but I think it's one of the best articulations of the promise of uh, applied history there is. It, that, that's, it, it's hard to come back against the words of Abraham Lincoln. Those are very, <laughs> very strong words. But you know, I, you're absolutely right. History gives... Uh, you know, teaches these lessons. It does, as, as you point out in the book, uh, uh, Lincoln's generation went through a period uh, worse than anything else in American history, the actual yep. dissolution of the country. Mm -hmm. And f for I, when I'm teaching, especially the introductory history students who will never take another history class, they're not history majors, and I, I try to instill in them that in the 24-hour news cycle we live in, everything has to be breaking news. Everything has to be the most important or the biggest or the fastest or the first ever of everything. And it's not. If you know history, it almost never is. There's Correct. always uh, perspective to be gained. and, and uh, it, it, uh, it, it, Essential perspective. And, you know, I find myself shaking my head at the idea that somebody would only take one history course in their life. I think that leaves <laughs> you profoundly unfit to serve as a truly active contributing citizen to a democratic republic. Um, and this, you know, to, to get on my soapbox for a second, but Please. we have done ourselves a great disservice in cutting American history and civics education. Um, uh, it, it happened over time for a myriad of reasons, focus on STEM, uh, you know, debates, you know, the, 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 the history wars that I think have been overstated by activists on either side. But, but, you know, if you, you know, it's the, the Harry Truman said, you know, the only thing old, new in the world is the history you don't know. Um, but that's particularly true 
for 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 citizens of the Democratic Republic. You know, my my book before this one was called Washington's Farewell, Washington's Farewell Address, and one of the points he makes in a brief paragraph on education is that is that you know enlightened opinion is essential for a self-governing society, and and so it. it there is no scenario where people in college should take one history course and, and we can expect to be a durable, resilient, wise democratic republic. We need to, I'm incredibly passionate. It's part of why I try to bring history into news coverage when I do it. Um, uh, uh, John, I'm going to interrupt you and just say amen to that about taking more than one class. Um, I, the screen tells me we're going to take a short break right now. We'll be back in just a moment. Tonight, we're talking with John Avlon, author of Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with John Avalon, author of Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. The title of this book, John, is you know seems to be uh, at odds with itself, fighting for peace. <laughs> In the book, you give a a summary of Lincoln's really entire career, but the great focus is on the last six weeks of his life Mm -hmm. uh, when when it's clear the war is going to end and peace will be the next uh, thing that he'll have to deal with. You point out that of the 16,000-plus books written about Lincoln, there haven't been many written about this specific moment, about the, the peacemaking yeah. window uh, at the end of the war. What what brought you to this particular topic? Well, I, I think two things. Um, <clears throat> the fact that my previous book had been about Washington's farewell address, where he was warning his fellow citizens and future generations about the forces that he feared could destroy our democratic republic. Uh, and then Lincoln uh, meets you know, the, Washington's worst fears. 
Um, and he's a, a different kind of leader in some respects. But I think they're both uniters in divided times. They're both iconic uh, American leaders for a reason, and they speak to the best of us. Um, I think also in, in, in our time, in the past decade and a half, uh, we have seen uh, the cost of not planning to win a peace. Um, you know, generationally, uh, as somebody who um, <clears throat> was involved in the response to 9-11, I was at the time working as Rudy Giuliani's chief speechwriter, and, and then seeing uh, the war in Iraq and how there was not, and, and, and the, the international intervention in Libya, and how in both cases there was not sufficient focus on, on how you secure a nation, how you win a peace. And so um, this angle, uh, this, this issue fascinated me, and I found Lincoln was a, a powerful vehicle to talk about, particularly at a time when people are talking far too casually about a second civil war. Um, and, um, and, you know, I did what one does when you're about to write a book about someone as iconic as Lincoln, which I called a few scholars who I, I knew, and I, I explained the idea to see if it had been done before, if I was missing something obvious. And I'll never forget Daniel Weinberg and the uh, Abraham Lincoln Bookshop, which I'm for sure you're familiar with and your listeners oh, yes. are too. Uh, started by Carl Sandburg in Chicago, Illinois. Um, I went and, and told him the idea, and I remember him scanning the books in, 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 in that beautiful room. Mm-hmm. And he said, Lincoln, the peacemaker. Well, I'll be darned. I don't think anyone's done that. <laughs> And, uh, and of course, there's a very good reason, which is that he's assassinated, you know, five days after Appomattox. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but, but I think, you know, as I make the case in the book, if you look at his speeches, his conversations, and the, particularly the final weeks of his life, beginning uh, with the second inaugural, bookended in his case with the, the final speech, uh, his executive orders, you, you can see he was sketching out uh, a, a dynamic but principled-based vision of how you win a peace after winning a war. Uh, which I distill as unconditional surrender, followed by a magnanimous peace. Um, and, and then uh, I, I trace, uh, uh, I think, the ultimate vindication of that idea by the grandchildren of the Civil War, uh, who were determined to win the peace after the Second World War. And, and actually, in, in writing books, you know, sometimes there's a seed that sticks with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, for, for a decade or more before you even thought about writing that book. And, and this was um, me stumbling upon a quote um, about a uh, quote by General Lucius Clay uh, in an article written by Bruce Catton. And he was recounting how he was asked by a General Lucius Clay, who was a, a, a Georgia-born 30 years after the Civil War, a general who oversaw the occupation of Germany after the Second World War. And a reporter asked him, what guided your decisions? And he said, uh, I tried to think what Abraham Lincoln would have done for the South if he had lived. Uh, and that was so unexpected and so mind-blowing that the book really came from that. Well, I do want to ask you about the uh, uh, your comparison to to other post-war reconstructions, but the first half of your formula, uh, unconditional surrender followed by uh, you know a magnanimous peace. Lincoln, uh, to get to unconditional surrender, Lincoln, the peacemaker, was also a a fierce warrior. Yes. Uh, uh, can you talk about that aspect? Sure. And this is where the, you know, you point out the apparent contradiction in the title. Um, and it comes from my conviction that peace needs to be waged with as much intensity as war for it to succeed. Um, and um, it, it, there is a yin and a yang to it. You know, this is the great seal of the United States. It's the all arrows and the olive branches. Um, and, and, and Lincoln was absolutely determined to win the war 
and, and, you know, as, as you and your listeners well know, one of the reasons he cycled through generals, finally settling on Grant, he said, you know, I cannot spare Grant. He fights. And he says to Grant in, in, in telegraphs, you know, you know, tenacious, hang on with a bulldog grip. Yeah. You know, his anger at Meade is for, for not following Lee, you know, not, not, not being aggressive enough. Thinking to, you know, the, the famous line about uh, McClellan, you know, uh, you know, pardon me for asking what your horses are too tired to have done. <laughs> um, so, no, you know, he and Sherman and, and in his creation of, of some of the first, uh, you know, laws of war, um, you know, they believe, you know, short wars are more merciful wars. You know, you need to be uh, intense and aggressive, but then that hard war should be followed by a soft peace, Lincoln believed. And, and you know, one of the things I think that's clarifying and crystallizing is, is in his uh, handwritten three indispensable conditions for peace, which he presents in at least two cases over the last six weeks of his life. One on the River Queen to Alexander Stevens and, uh, you know, the, the, the Confederate delegates there. And then again to former Supreme Court Justice uh, John Campbell um, uh, and Gustavus Meyer in, 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 uh, in Richmond, uh, which, you know, you'll have to explain to me later why Lincoln and Richmond is often given short shrift in multi-volume biographies. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, but, you know, his third condition is very surprising to people. He said, no ceasefire before surrender. Um, and I, I think that speaks to his far-sighted wisdom, where he understood that a ceasefire would be possible, but without a surrender preceding a ceasefire, uh, that, that you know, you, you fell into the trap that Wilson and the Allies fell into after Versailles. You know, the, the political will would, would dissipate among the popularity of the ceasefire. And, and so the really transformative things to be done to ensure no other war ignites on the ashes of the past, and particularly the end of slavery, the passage of ratification of the 13th Amendment, um, that that's essential. So, so it, it, it's very much a balance, and, and it is the fight for peace in both senses of that. The uh, boy, there's so many directions I'd, I'd want to ask all at once. Uh, you mentioned the River Queen, and in your book, you talk about the uh, the, the painting by Healy called The Peacemakers, and I'm sure yeah. many listeners are familiar with that. Uh, Lincoln in conversation with, with, with Grant and Sherman and Porter. There's a reproduction of that in the uh, in a hotel in Gettysburg where yep. the the uh, uh, Civil War tour that that I go on every year. Uh, with our group stays there, and uh, I always stop and look at it. Uh, I've got the group put away for the night, and I'll just go down to the lobby and look at that painting. Mm. Even it's, it's not a great reproduction, but it's it's the three faces uh, looking at Lincoln. Uh, yeah, you you write eloquently about that painting. Tell us your impression. Well, that painting. Uh, you know, contains multitudes. Um, uh, if you look at one of the official paintings of uh, portraits of George H.W. Bush, I think it's his official presidential portrait, that painting is in the background. Um, and was, I think, maybe the first time I really focused on it. And then I found the history that had been purchased by Harry S. Truman uh, in February 1947. It's called The Peacemakers. When I found the history of the painting going back, it, it's even more extraordinary as an achievement because it was painted shortly after Lincoln's assassination. But Healy interviewed Sherman and Grant and Porter about that meeting, which I believe is May 29th, March 29th on the River Queen, which was then parked um, at City Point, Virginia. And it's the it's the it's the culminating meeting of the war. Um, and there are many accounts of it. Uh, Sherman speaks about it in detail. So does Porter, um, Grant to a lesser extent. Um, 
We even know what Grant uh, Sherman is saying when he's snapping his fingers in that picture, <laughs> which is he's going to get Lee in a vice-like grip. Um, and, 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 and so it really was a piece of reportage, but it's transcendent. And there are a couple of licenses, like the rainbow behind Lincoln. Mm-hmm. But to me, it, it, it's, it's suffused with the spirit of the Enlightenment as well as America's second founding. It's, it's people reasoning together to create a better world. Uh, and uh, it really is a faithful uh, capturing of that moment. Um, which is, I think, one of the greatest moments. And Lincoln is saying repeatedly in that conversation about the Confederate rank and file, you know, give them the most liberal and honorable terms. You know, give them their guns to go home and shoot crows with and their, their, uh, their, their uh, horses to plow their fields with. We want to return them to the laws. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, what Grant, Grant's, Grant's terms of surrender at Appomattox, which he writes out longhand. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think a strong case can be made in large part based on that conversation and uh, the, the recounting of Grant's conversation with uh, Lincoln uh, at Petersburg on the the uh, the porch of that uh, house, mm-hmm. Peterson House, I believe it is. Um, uh, I think there's a strong case to be made that the terms of surrender he writes out, he's basically taking dictation based on those conversations mentally uh, Lincoln. Now, Grant, you know, writes these these terms uh, before Sherman can can deal with Johnson. Of course, is the yeah, yeah assassination that, that complication terms. aside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that that another thing comes up, but the assassination of Lincoln brings us to a question that uh, every Lincoln speaker gets if they ask for general questions: What would have happened if Lincoln had not been assassinated? And in a sense, your, your entire book is a meditation on, on that, or at least on the principles that Lincoln mm-hmm. espoused. Um, what's the single, the single biggest deviation that Andrew Johnson, or, or oh. biggest difference between Johnson as he was and Lincoln as he would have been? Well, it, it, as I make in, in the chapter which about Johnson, which is called the anti-Lincoln, I think it fundamentally comes down to a question of character. Part, part of... Uh, the, the, the portrait of leadership uh, um, that, that I present um, is posited on this idea that people's politics are a reflection of their principles, and that's a vision, that's actually an extension or reflection of their personality. And and I, I think you know Lincoln's character is based upon. Uh, first of all, I think I argue in detail that he exemplifies, and in fact, partly creates a style of reconciling leadership, reconciliation-oriented leadership. Um, but that you know he's a man to fund. He's a he's a a reconciler in time of radicals and reactionaries, and his personality is predicated upon empathy, honesty, humor, and humility. Um, Johnson is the opposite of Lincoln, except in his humble beginnings. He is alternately radical and reactionary. He is not known for his empathy, his honesty, his humor, or his humility. In terms of the concrete principles uh, or policies that he puts forward that are deviations from Lincoln, despite his protests and his defenders, uh, meager as they may be, um, I mean, clearly, first of all, the vetoing of, of the extension of the Freedmen's Bureau, I think, is disastrous and a decided break with what Lincoln uh, clearly uh, wanted. Um, I think his his acquiescence to the passage of the Black Codes, um, which, which occur in the, in the late summer and fall of 1865 in some cases, uh, his removal of uh, black troops in the South for fear of offending white Southerners, uh, uh, the conflict and that all these things create with the radical reaction. The radicals and Lincoln were getting ready to have their fights of their own. So it's not that 
you know, it's not that Lincoln's, you know, future would have been a glide path. And I really do try to avoid the what ifs. I try to simply talk about the extensions of the principles. Um, uh, but but and, and then I think there's there's sort of the uh, Lincoln's commitment to what I call the politics of the golden rule, um, which I think would have made some of the impositions on the South uh, more palatable uh, for some of them, uh, mm-hmm. not not all of them. Um but but I think th- those three concrete examples uh, are very clear. And I, I think he would have insisted on equal justice under law. And he specifically contemplated the rise of organizations like the KKK, that he was very concerned about the vacuum that could be created in the absence of law and order and the way it would give rise to vigilante groups and all those things are, that, that came to pass. He was also determined to be magnanimous to rank and file uh, Confederates, but to not be quick to give amnesty and a, and a clawing back of their power uh, to people who should have known better. You know, the, 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 the former members of Congress and the courts and the military who joined the Confederacy. And, and Johnson, you know, couldn't, couldn't wait to give them all amnesty as long as they came and kissed his ring. So I have another question in that line. I'm going to wait till we come back from break okay. in a few minutes so we can go into it more fully. But you, you alluded briefly to the, the visit to Richmond, uh, which I agree is one of the surreal moments in American history. Uh, and the listeners may recall the, the, the story of the time Grant or, or Lincoln went to Norfolk, Virginia, and, and he and the Secretary of War went ashore uh, like an advanced scouting party to see if there's a place the federal troops could land. That's bizarre enough. The president yeah. has point man on a, a LARP patrol, but then being the first officer, commander in chief in this case, into Richmond, practically speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, with with just a handful of sailors to escort him and his little boy by his side, the ashes are still glowing, the fires are still burning, and the city is filled with hostile. We we didn't see President Bush walk through Baghdad the day after yeah. Saddam Hussein left. It would have been insanely dangerous. Sure. Uh, so I'm 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 fully in agreement with you. I don't understand why this has not been talked about more. Uh, does it not just blow your mind to ask a... a, a, a it, it, it does, which is why I begin the book with it, and the book is also built around it. If you look at the mm-hmm. architecture of the book, I mean, I begin, uh, you know, I think the first sentence, I'm doing this from memory, but, you know, Abraham Lincoln um, walked into the burning f- Confederate capital uphill from the river, passing abandoned slave markets on his right, holding his boy Tad's hand on his, his 12th birthday. Uh, I mean, all the contrasts that make for great drama are there, and it's real. You know, he, he walks into the city not as a conquering hero, um, but, 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 but you know, virtually unescorted. You know, he's not leading a great army. So it, it, is, it is mind-boggling to me how that has not been separated out, uh, celebrated more. Even in multi-volume biographies, uh, you know, there's a guy named Michael Gorman who's an extraordinary park ranger in Richmond who did a 90-page treatment of Lincoln in Richmond, which I recommend and which I credit enormously in the book. Um, but it, it is it is one of the great moments of American history, and that's just the surface of it. Uh, and we have contemporaneous accounts by journalists, including the extraordinarily talented and gifted black war correspondent Thomas Morris Chester, mm-hmm. um, who's a brilliant writer. Um, and, and there's so many moments in that March up the hill, which I recreated with my son, uh, uh, you know, in research for the book and, and, you know, culminating and ultimately him sitting in Jefferson Davis's chair. Uh, and, and then all the, the, the rest of that day, I, I, I do not understand uh, how it has not 
received a more central place in our national mythology. But that's, you know, the, the, the book also builds towards it. And if you look at the architecture, it's the centerpiece of the book is Lincoln and Richmond, because I think that's where he exemplifies uh, his leadership in many cases. Well, you know, just as Doris Kearns Goodwin's uh, book, Team of Rivals, was turned into a movie, and they they cut out 98% and just focused on the 13th Amendment, which was a brilliant choice. Yes, it was. Uh, uh, it may, maybe this book of 270 text pages can be uh, become a movie in which that story becomes the the narrative device, and uh, I'll take there a small percentage for that suggestion. God um, bless you for that. But uh, <laughs> it would be a it would be a it's very cinematic, uh, certainly. It would be a it wonderful is. story to tell. We're going to take another short break. We'll come back and talk more with our guest, John Avlon. He's the author of Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry Prokopovich. We are talking tonight with John Avlon, author of Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, uh, a book about the ending of Lincoln's life, the last six weeks in which he prepares uh, the nation to reunite after the Civil War, an opportunity we, of course, know he was not able to uh, employ. John, the introduction of your book, uh, well, when you write about Johnson, you you said a minute ago your chapter about Johnson is called the anti-Lincoln. Uh, mm-hmm. And that made sense. But as I was reading your introduction, which is, I think, the longest uh, single part of the book, it really goes into Lincoln's character. Mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned four qualities that, that mark him, empathy, honesty, humor, humility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I was reading your description of Lincoln, I said, um, Lincoln, as described here, is being presented as the anti-Trump. And we don't mm-hmm. normally talk 
politics and civil war talk radio, contemporary 21st century politics. Mm -hmm. But the contrast was so striking. Um, Let me ask a fact question. When did you start writing the book uh, in terms of what was going on in the United States? This book was written during the Trump presidency. Okay. Um, How how conscious were you of that, uh, of the contrast between the two? Very. This this was uh, the medicine at the end of the day uh, that uh, restored hope and provided perspective. I I, I see where you're coming from. The uh, and I know Civil War Talk Radio listeners are from all political perspectives, and I've had good yeah. online conversations with people Absolutely. of all views, but. In terms of, but there are some things that any observer will agree upon, whether whether one supports policies or not. There are there are character traits. No no Correct. no fan of Trump would say, oh, he's full of empathy and humility. Um, those just are not characteristics anyone. He, he wouldn't assign them to himself, I assume. Uh, whereas Lincoln Lincoln <laughs> has know. them. Uh, yeah. You know, honesty and humor, not the strong suits. So um, certainly not self-deprecating humor. No, not self, not not at all. And and Lincoln was self-effacing and and mm-hmm. uh, made himself the butt of jokes. Uh, so the contrast was very strong. I, you're not wrong. I had, <laughs> I, your your use of the word medicine is very very appropriate. Uh, I had a commission to write a, a book about Lincoln's memory uh, back around 2017, and the public. The public discourse changed so radically, and the the denigration of fact and evidence became so much a part of our our, our national conversation that I became too discouraged to write that book. Um, oh, that's too bad. And and uh, I'll, I'll write another one. Uh, but but medicine, indeed, Lincoln is medicine for that, isn't he? Lincoln is medicine on so many levels. You know, when you write a book about somebody, um, you have the privilege of spending a lot of time with them. Um, and I've been able to spend four years each with Washington and Lincoln. Um, and, and in conscious contrast to, you know, what I do during the day. Uh, and and it, it, um, it is ballast, it is medicine, all that. Um, Lincoln is, is really rare, though, in that the more time you spend with him, he doesn't disappoint. And I'm not talking about putting him on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. I try to take people off their pedestals because it makes them a lot more interesting. I try to avoid, you know, the 20 or 30 stories that get retold in every book about Lincoln. You know, if it's, if it's part of that, I, I really try to, to not tell that. Um, it, it doesn't need to be done. I also um, try to make sure I don't read anything too contemporary that's been written about them because um, I don't want that music in my head. Um, but, um, you know, for me, it, it's Lincoln reminds us that kindness can be consistent with effective leadership. Mm-hmm. I think that's a lesson we can't take to heart too much now or then. Uh, you know, what, what Sherman says about, about Lincoln, um, reflecting in his memoirs about the last time he saw him uh, at City Point, after that meeting, it was captured in the Peacemakers, um, where, where he talks about... Um, that of all the great men he ever met, um, that he had the most goodness. And of all the good men he ever met, he had the most characteristics of greatness. 
I think the key to understanding why Lincoln inspired so much devotion is not simply his great accomplishments, nor is it his martyrdom. Uh, it's that he combined goodness with greatness, and his goodness is the key to his greatness. And that is not something we see often in in, in politics. It, it it really isn't. And your your point that when you scratch beneath the surface and and I had exactly the same experience you just mentioned when I was in graduate school first studying Lincoln. Uh, I thought, well, you know, let's find the feet of clay. Let's scratch beneath the surface and see, was he really honest? Was he really all that funny? Was he? And the answer was yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. There was no uh, no pretense. No, there's, He's not hiding anything. Uh, and yet, yet he's struggling with depression. He's got a very complicated marriage that causes yes. some, some despair. Uh he, he, he is sunshine and shadow. One of the things I loved was the recounting of him, particularly in 1862 and afterwards, where he reads the book of Job for comfort and, remer- <laughs> and emerges, quote, oddly cheerful. Um, uh, you know, um, it, 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 but he is greater because of those human qualities. And I think it's one of the reasons he outpaces Washington in historical memories. He's more relatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he has so many characters and so many contradictions. I mean, he, he's so sure. He, he, you present, you write a great deal about the second inaugural address, an extraordinarily uh, spiritual uh, mm-hmm. meditation. But he never joins a church. Uh, no, no, he's not a conventional Christian. Uh, he's so gregarious and humorous, but he has no real close soulmate, no friend. Uh, he has people he gets along with, and yes, right. He loves he, old friends, though, doesn't he? He takes he great comfort from that. And I, I, I'm particularly struck, and I write about this in the book, that he loves hanging out and writing in telegraph offices. And yes. I think that speaks <laughs> to a certain aspect of his personality. And and and, and some of the uh, accounts of his personality talk about how he's an outwardly, you know, he has a gregarious side and a side that's very inward. But but that it, it, hanging out in telegraph offices, there are two things, right? You're it's the emails of the day or the text message of the day. It's the most recent information he can get. But he, it allows him to be alone with a small group. He doesn't have to perform. He can write. He writes a lot in telegraph offices. But he gets a lot of comfort from kind of the jovial uh, back and forth of the telegraph operators as well as access to the most updated information. I think it's very telling uh, of his real personality. Let me ask a, a switch gears back to the question about post-war reconstruction that I did don't want to leave hanging from our previous segment. Uh, you write about how uh, uh, Lucius Clay, who you've already cited, uh, in Germany, Douglas MacArthur in Japan, each use the form of, of winning an unconditional victory the, the, with no question of armistice. This is a complete surrender, followed by generous rebuilding. In Germany, you had the problem of denazification yeah. and removing from every position of power people who held the old beliefs. Uh, Heather Cox Richardson, in, in her book about how the South has won the Civil War, argues that the uh, a, a traditional white oligarchy has held power through much of the country's history. It's defeated in the Civil War, but not eliminated. It's suppressed during the Civil Rights era, but comes back again. Uh, could Lincoln have eradicated that element? Look, one of the things I think about's great about Lincoln is that he. Um, you know, he is not a utopian. 
he bases everything upon, I think, a fairly sturdy understanding of human nature and doesn't think that can be replaced. My personal belief, and I think Lincoln would agree in some form, <laughs> is that you know utopian dreams usually end in nightmares. And it's one of the reasons he resists the demands of the radical Republicans um, at the time, uh, because he doesn't think you can rip up culture from the roots without provoking a great deal of resentment. He understands that, you know, there, there needs to be, you know, that great quote he has about, you know, it will take some time for blacks and whites to gradually outlive their old relations with each other. Um, that he, he wants to, he's not, it doesn't take an, in his last speech, he doesn't take an ideological approach uh, to reconstruction, although he says important principles may and must be inflexible. But he understands and is anticipating federalism and saying each state's version is going to be a little bit different. The important thing is that they accept the authority of the Union, they rewrite the constitutions, and they ratify the 13th Amendment, and they end slavery for all time. Uh, and you should compare what works with what doesn't. Uh, and, and, and so there is a really healthy understanding of states as laboratories of democracy. Um, I think he would have done a better, I think he would not have allowed the, the white planter class to regain power as quickly as they did. I don't think he would have allowed the black codes to be imposed purely on the basis of law. I think he would have kept uh, equal justice under law. I think he, he would have uh, allowed the free, definitely would have allowed the Freedmen Bureaus to continue, which is an incredibly important, innovative organization. It was basically killed in its crib when it was in a position to do the most good. Um, and, and, and so, you know, um, I, I think there's every reason to suggest now that doesn't mean American history is rewritten in, you know, and all of a sudden, um, you know, the, 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 you know, we're a perfect place. But I do think the fact that slavery is replaced with segregation for a century is a mark of failing to win the peace. Um, and, 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 and in, in defense of the, the generation, the defense with air quotes around it, okay. um, you know, there was a, a an emphasis on uh, promoting reconciliation between whites of the North and South at the expense of honoring the promise of emancipation. Um, and um, I, I think that's what we need to be wide-eyed about, as well as understanding the massive resistance to multiracial democracy. And, and with regard to the Nazi Nazis, you can understand, uh, and I make this case briefly in the book, um, that uh, you can look at the rise of the National uh, Socialist Workers Party, the Nazi Party, as a form of lost cause mythology rooted around uh, the 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 uh, this is the First World War and, and the failures of the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, you know, trace it. It's blood and soil. It's it's that we didn't really lose. Uh, it was it was in a noble cause. It's it's a a a, a racial um, Aryan centered uh, sense of supremacy that was thwarted. Uh, I mean, it, lost cause mythology is incredibly pernicious, and it's not only in the United States. With uh, our last few minutes, let me mm -hmm. ask uh, what level you're having read this about Lincoln and then applying it with your your day job. Uh, <laughs> is there any reason to have a sense of optimism? Uh, yes. Do do we need another Lincoln, a <laughs> uh, once in a million, or, or or can we each be a little Lincoln ourselves? That's the point. Um, you know, I, I, I address this a bit in the book. I, I got that same question last night speaking at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics. Mm -hmm. Great organization. Um, uh, it, it's not that we're going to find another Lincoln, but it's important to remember that Lincoln's qualities were rare in his time as well. Um, it, it, it's that we need to seek out individuals of a similar spirit. And I do think a reconciling style of leadership. Um, it, it, it promotes enormously valuable qualities that we should be seeking out. The incentive structures in our politics right now do not reward that. They reward 
a tribal vision of politics that if you have any understanding of American history, you'll say is actually leads to our worst moments and is the thing we should be most avoid. But that is incumbent upon us, therefore, to elevate leaders in our own selves, in our own lives as citizens to try to send, transcend those divisions. Looking to Lincoln to inspire us. I think it's why the second founding is an enormously durable place to rebuild conceptions of a shared national story uh, and, and, and Lincoln's best qualities. Challenge us. Look, let's face it. Empathy has been strained. Mm-hmm. But if Lincoln could retain a high degree of empathy, even in the middle of a civil war, not just with malice toward none, with charity for all, um, but, you know, it, all his statements consistently separating, I'm not anti-South or anti-Southern, I'm anti-slavery, um, keeping his sense of humor, a reputation of honesty, which can build trust, a sense of moral humility, um, that, you know, that, that, that his unique combination uh, of combining moral courage with moderation not allowing moral courage to slide into moral superiority, which as we see often happens in our politics today. Those are the qualities that inspire us. And above all of the study of history today, particularly civil war history, I think it should give us optimism and courage and comfort because it reminds us that we have been through far worse before. So we'll get through this again, but we will by learning the best lessons of our history as a philosophy to learn wisdom from, and none of them is wrongs to be revenged. Ah, and that brings us full cycle to the epigraph of, of the book. Uh, the book is called Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. Uh, you can find this book, unlike many of the academic books we often talk about, uh, you can find this at your local bookstore almost certainly, uh, and uh, as well as online and anywhere else. Uh, it, it really is uh, some good medicine and a, uh, an example of what popular history does best. Uh, it, it, it's, it's not archival. It doesn't dig up new facts. It takes stories uh, we thought we knew and shows us them to us in a new light, makes them relevant for today. And can, I, can I nudge way. you on one point? Sure. I think it's the first time 15 the, contents, seconds. the contents of his, uh, uh, the newspaper articles in his wallet the night he died, I think it's the first time they've been transcribed. There we go. So we do Minor learn point. something new. We learn something <laughs> new after all. Uh, listeners, get yourself a copy. You'll enjoy it. Uh, John, thank you so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. It's a great honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for all that you do. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.